here today with the great Stephen Schneider, who has served as CEO of Logi Analytics, a venture-backed business intelligence firm based in the D.C. area, Capital Canary, a leading government affairs technology firm, and who's now currently serving as the general manager of the analytics business unit of Cloud Software Group, which is made up of both Spotfire and Jaspersoft. And before all that, he founded a business intelligence company of his own called On Demand IQ based in L.A., Stephen, welcome to Road to CEO. Thanks for being on. Thank you very much for having me, Will. It's good to see you again. Did I get everything in your intro correct? Uh, really well, actually, better than I would have done it myself. So thank you for that. Well, let's start right at the beginning. What was on-demand IQ all about? I want to test your memory here. What, what okay. was your experience like creating a company from scratch? Uh, so you're taking me way back, right? So that was one of my early entrepreneurial uh, endeavors where I was working for a larger uh, medical device distributor company and was trying to stand up a kind of an entire uh, sales operations type capability. So territory mapping, sales reporting, report cards, things along those lines. And when that company was acquired and, and I found myself out of a job, uh, I really thought that there was an opportunity to establish a product-based company that would provide a lot of the kind of online capabilities around sales operations, sales communication, things along those lines. And so we started by, you know, coding myself. I had a background in computer science. I started by coding myself a little bit of product, was able to sell that back to the acquiring company, a company that I knew well, and I knew exactly what those gaps were, and then built it from there. And we built that into a little bit over a million dollar business in the first year or two. Uh, they quickly realized that that I and we as a team did not have the skills and or capital to scale it to be the type of product-led business that we wanted. It was going to ultimately be a services business. So uh, we ultimately sold that business about two and a half years in. Interesting. So, and who did you sell it to? So it was actually sold to Logi Analytics, which is how I first came in to join Logi Analytics. And when I first joined that organization, I joined in a technical capacity. Um, but, you know, had the good fortune of having, I think, seven different business cards in my first seven different roles there, and then ultimately became CEO of that business. So you said you knew them well before you uh, were acquired by them. How did you get to know them? Uh, well, so so what I was referencing is that when I first started the company, um, I, I knew the business that I had been part of as an employee. So I understood what the gaps were. And I understand what the problems were in the market. And so when I built the product, they became my first customer because I knew that they had those pain points as well. So I that's see. what I was referencing. I see. Very nice. So did you always plan on going into business? I did. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I had an undergrad degree in computer science. And I still remember when I was about 20 years old, I was like a sophomore or junior in college. And I remember looking around the room and saying, I am never going to be a great computer programmer. Like at best, I'm going to be slightly above average. And so I thought about, well, how am I going to differentiate and how am I going to build my career? Because if I go down the path that I'm trained to, I'll be average. And that's not what I wanted to do. Um, and I, you know, at the time I was very extroverted. I was very engaged. I was very active in things like student government. I was very comfortable with public speaking. Um, and so, you know, I thought that, okay, I'm going to have to take my technical knowledge and apply it in a more business sense. And so I'm going to have to learn all of those skills that I wasn't trained in. Um, and layer those onto my technical background. So I made that decision pretty early on. So uh, so you founded On Demand IQ. It was acquired by Logi Analytics, and you joined Logi Analytics then. Uh, tell me about your first years at Logi Analytics. What was, what was that like? Well, so back then it was called Logi XML. Um, and I joined as part of that acquisition. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge acquisition, but it was something that, that 
return both the capital that I invest in the business as well as, you know, better than if I just gone and gotten a regular job. Um, but I joined as a small business, right? It was a five to $6 million company venture backed. And, and part of my reason for joining was to learn how to scale a software company. Very quickly after joining, I realized that the business was in a bit of distress. Uh, they were not meeting their growth targets. And in fact, the CEO came to me about three months after I got there saying that they were going to be searching for a new CEO to lead the business. It was at that time that I said, well, I don't have anything to lose. So I just started getting involved in all aspects of the business. And, and pretty quickly after doing so, a board member came to me and said, can you run sales while we try and figure this out and hire a new CEO? And I said, well, I, I, I don't, surely you can find someone better. I mean, I worked at the Gap for a while. Uh, I had my business for a little while, but, but surely you can find experienced VP of sales. And they said, look around, who? So I said, all right, well, I guess I'll do that. So I, I jumped into that role um, and we hired a new CEO uh, very quickly on, uh, someone that has served as a mentor to me for many years named, named Brett Jackson. Um, I ultimately served as VP of sales in that business for five years, growing that business steadily. And over the course of the first seven years, uh, continue to take on new responsibility, uh, trying my, my, you know, trying out all the different functions of the business and learning those different functional areas. You and I met actually when you had that role as VP of sales. And I remember one of the things I remember about you was that you seemed very data driven to me. You know, I remember you uh, standing up, giving presentations and running through numbers and really be taking a data-driven approach to meeting sales targets and holding people accountable. Is that is that an accurate memory? This was a long time ago. I, I'm smiling. Those of you joining us on audio won't remember, won't, won't see this, but I, I am an engineer. I think like an engineer. Everything I do is an engineer. I think in terms of boxes and lines and conversion um, it, it's a little robotic sometimes, but but yes, absolutely. I'm probably one of the more data-driven people that you will ever meet. And I think in I, that's how I think about every process and everything that I do. So it's interesting that you took the job as VP of sales without any background in sales other than maybe the gap. Um, how was, was that really difficult or did you, was it easier than you expected, more difficult? Uh, VP of sales is the best job I've ever had. Uh, I absolutely love it. So look, I, I've always found that I do really well when I'm drowning a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, I'm grasping for air. I'm trying to figure things out. I'm in a high stress environment. And and that is what I was at the time. Um, but that's okay. Uh, that, that's kind of where I thrive. In fact, if I think about the kind of roles that I take on now and where I think I excel the best, I look for opportunities where I'm kind of 80% in my wheelhouse and 20% drowning a little bit. Uh, so, you know, taking on that job at the time seemed like a crazy thing to do, but yeah, it's fine. Don't worry too much. You know, that's interesting. I can relate to that a lot. I started my career on Capitol Hill. I became a press secretary for, for two different members of Congress very early on. And, um, and I had no idea. I didn't know what a press release was. I'd never written a speech before. I got very little training and I, but, but that was kind of how it was on Capitol Hill. You know, they don't, they don't have super experienced people right from the start. And so it was a kind of thing where you have to have a lot of faith in yourself, take the plunge and it all worked out great. And I've become a real believer that if you push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit, that's the best way to grow. You know, most of this stuff is not that hard. You just got to figure it out. It, it really isn't. And and as long as you're like not afraid to ask for help or not afraid to research and look for different resources to support you, you figure it out. Um, and that's how I approach almost most everything that I do now. So I, I want to stick with this for just a moment more. So so you took a job that, that you hadn't 
didn't have a ton of background in, you found out you loved it. Was there anything in particular that you did to prepare yourself or to, uh, uh, to get up to speed that proved to be very useful? You know, that's, that's a great question. Um, with almost anything that I do, and this is, again, it's an engineer, right, is I break things down to big to, to small problems. So anytime I encounter anything, anytime I break that I have a conversation, I'm super structured. I think about, you know, what's my top level thing that I need to accomplish? How do I break that down into the individual pieces that I have to accomplish as part of that? And then I break it down even further into kind of small problems with small things that I need to figure out. And then I just start tackling them one by one by one by one. By one. Um, and so, you know, how do I, you know, run a sales process? Okay, well, I need to find someone that knows how to run a sales process and document that and understand it. How do I, you know, operationally, how do I do that? Okay, well, what, what are the different operational mechanisms like Salesforce or Siebel or CRMs to do that? How do, all right, I got to do that. So it's all about just kind of building that outline. And, you know, I used to, and I still do sometimes, you know, methodically write it out. Like I'll literally take a, an objective and break it down to all its different components on a whiteboard or a piece of paper and then start just knocking down individual pieces. For the most part, now I do it mentally. I can just do it in my head really, really fast. But like anything else, taking a big problem and breaking it down into its functional components is is the simplest way to solve a problem. So what do you do uh, after your role as VP of sales? You moved because you progressed eventually to become CEO. Where, where did you go from from there? Well, so when I were in sales, I, I tended to be the guy that was good enough at everything, but not great at any one thing. That whenever there was a drop in the business, meaning an executive quit, or there was some new initiative that needed to get taken over, or whatever it might be, it would typically fall to me. So I had the good fortune to run marketing twice. I ran product for a couple of years. I ran engineering for a little while. Um, I really bounced around roles. Um, and then when the time came in 2015, 2016, and the current CEO was looking to move on, uh, you know, I was kind of the natural fit. Um, to move into that role. I, I wouldn't say that that I was the only fit. There were certainly others in the organization that could have stepped into that role. Um, but, you know, I, I had enough of that kind of broad base of knowledge of both how the business operated, the functional areas, the history, um, that it was it was relatively straightforward to step into it. So how big had Logi grown by the time you took over as CEO? So it depends on the measure you want to use. Um, we were about 185 employees at that point. Uh, so from an employee standpoint, that's where we're at. Um, from a revenue standpoint, we're about 30 million. Um, now, back then, this is back when there was a, a mix of subscription and perpetual. And we were doing a fair bit of professional services and perpetual business back then. Okay. So when you joined the company, I think you said it was 5 million, 6 million maybe in revenue. The company was in a little bit of trouble. And then you took over as CEO and it, it the company was at that point about 30 million or so. Mm -hmm. That's about right. Yeah. So, uh, and then how long did you stay as CEO? So I stayed as CEO. So I took over as CEO in early 2016. Uh, we then sold the business to Marlin Equity Partners, which is a private equity group in 2017. Um, I then stayed on as CEO. And then that business was ultimately sold to Insight Software in early 2021. Okay. So, so you had a good tenure as CEO in that case, then that was, that's a, a good amount of time. What was it like? What, what did, was there anything where, I mean, it sounds like you were very well prepared from a business perspective. You'd had a lot of roles. Was there anything that surprised you? About yeah, I wouldn't say I was well-prepared. I, 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 being someone that had enough of the experience to be able to step into the role and being well-prepared isn't necessarily the same thing. Um, you know, we actually had to take the business through a pretty dramatic change. When I took over in 2016, uh, the business was in a bit of distress. Um, you know, we were trying to do way too many things and we were losing money and we were not really growing. 
And, and the reality is that is not a valuable business. Um, a business that is not growing, losing money, um, has really you know, poor sales and marketing efficiency, um, is not really necessarily a good place to go. And in fact, in many ways, one would argue, why did it, you know, why does someone get their first time CEO job? It's because who's never been it before. It's like, well, there's hard to get someone better. Um, so, you know, the, the business definitely had some challenges. Uh, I had to go through a process where we really cut quite a few of the positions and shrunk the business. Um, you know, my point of view there was that we were trying to do too many things and serve too many markets and we need to decide what we we're going to be the best at and do that. So when I took over in May of 2016, we had 185 employees. We took that down to roughly 120 by the end of that year. So it was a very challenging year in that regard. That being said, by the time Q2 of the following year rolled around, uh, we had our best bookings quarter ever and our first quarter of profitability. Uh, so the business was 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 sized to a point, was focused to a point where we could start to grow the business again, and and that's what we did. Um, and you know, over the course of the next couple of years, we we doubled more than doubled the size of our recurring revenue. When you say it was the first quarter of profitability, do you mean the first quarter in the company's history? You know, I, I couldn't go back to like 2008, 2009, so I, I can't promise you that, but yeah. certainly it was the first quarter of profitability uh, in many, many years. Very interesting. So I mean, it's a venture-backed software company, right? So right. it was a venture-backed software company, and, and in those, profitability is not necessarily the measure of success. Right, growth is actually more commonly the measure of success, and we were growing for a number of years quite quite at a fast pace. Um, but you cannot be profitable and growing, but you can't be not growing and not profitable. That doesn't work. So, how did you decide what to focus on in that case? You're doing too many things. What did what did you end up focusing on? How did was it a difficult decision? Um, how did how did you make that decision? Yeah, so so it's interesting. You talk about data driven. I, I went back to my roots from a data driven standpoint. So you know, when you looked at the business, at, we were in the broader kind of business intelligence and analytics space, and it's very easy to to very get caught up in this. I'm going to sell to anybody with data kind of argument, uh, which means there's, there's lots of different use cases. But when you do lots of different things, it's hard to get really efficient and really directed at any one of them. Um, so I made a decision that we have to focus. Then the question becomes, well, what do you focus on? So in partnership with my CFO, we built a very, very sophisticated Excel model with a lot of assumptions. We basically asked the question, what if we only focus on this use case? What would the business look like? And you know, what are some valid assumptions and ranges on those assumptions? What if we only focused on this persona? What would the business look like? What if we only focused in North America? What if we only focused in Europe? What if we only focused on enterprise accounts? Um, and we created about 10 different scenarios of the business. And when we looked at them, none of the metrics were very good. That being said, some of them show that with focus, we, we had a path to them being good. We had a path to, we, we had competitive advantage in certain areas. We had better sales and marketing efficiency. We had better renewal rates. And so we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And that's what we're going to focus on. But again, it required us to actually cut the business to then grow back again. And so as a first time CEO, only recently taken over, I had to go to my board and say, you know, that growth you were talking about, I'm actually going to shrink by, you know, 30% or something along those lines. And they said, well, how are you going to do that? You're not making, you're actually losing money. You can't cut off the top line. You know, you have even more of a hole. And I said, well, I'm going to have to bring down the bottom line. Too. I'm going to have to bring down the expenses as well to match. Um, and so it was a difficult conversation, but, you know, the strategy made sense. The focus made sense. And that's what we did. And it ended up being a good decision. And then that positioned you for an acquisition uh, a couple years down the road, it sounds like. Well, so interestingly enough, it was that story 
that allowed for Marlin Equity Partners, our new investor, to come in and acquire our asset uh, from our existing investors and then grow. So we had been talking to them previously, but we're not able to get a deal done. Um, but that strategy is one that they believed in. And at that point, we had demonstrated track record of six months at that point of executing that strategy, and they were ready to hop on board. Um, and so that actually allowed us to um, bring in new investors that were aligned to our vision, um, had the um, had the, uh, the the timeline and patience to allow us to execute that, as well as do some acquisitions in the meantime. Um, and then we ultimately sold the business again three and a half years later. So then, uh, so then you sell you sell the business. You're out of the job, I guess, or no, you kept the job and oh. uh, you kept on after Marlin Equity bought the uh, the company. Um, you know, for some time, um, did things change after you had the new owners in place? You know, things changed in that we had more resources to invest. It's not that they put money in, but they were very open to pursuing M&A as a path to building value. And so we actually did do multiple acquisitions um, as part of that, uh, which was great. And, and, it, and it was a really good path to building value. We, we got good return on both of those acquisitions that we did. So then, uh, so then how did you end up wrapping up your time at Logi? So we sold the business to Insight Software. Mm -hmm. um, I actually transitioned during that process into an executive chairman role to support that process of selling the business and to make sure that there was leadership as part of the new entity. Um, but you know, I exited the business right around when we closed the deal with Insight Software. Um, so. so at that point, I think maybe you're, you're out of the job, you're thinking what you wanna do next at that point. Um, and uh, when did your next opportunity present itself? Oh, I, I hopped into the next gig relatively quickly, um, you know, and, and and that's a gig where it was a company called Phone to Action that had uh, was really the combination of Phone to Action and two other smaller companies, a company called GovPredict and a company called um, Novu, that were combined as part of a PE investment thesis to be a one-stop shop in government affairs. Um, you know, there was a real operational challenge just to kind of synchronize these businesses. Um, there was a product marketing and kind of messaging challenge around how do I provide a unified message and go to market for this. Um, and so it had some very kind of near term tasks that we needed to accomplish. Uh, I actually was only there for 15 months. Uh, we ended up merging that business pretty quickly with another business called Quorum um, that is that is still active today um, and still pursuing those markets. And, and they really had that same vision of a one-stop shop in government affairs and were owned by a, another private equity company that was very friendly with the private equity company that owned to action. So it made sense to combine those entities. What did you think about the government affairs space? Um, so, so, so it was not to my taste, I will say. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, so I grew up watching the Talking Heads and the McLaughlin Group in the morning and, you know, what's his name, Bill Russell or whatever on, uh, you know, on Sunday morning. Uh, and so I definitely had some appeal and interest in, in getting exposed to that area and to kind of be part of the D.C. scene. Uh, I walked away saying it's probably not my scene. Uh, there's definitely it's, it's like a little world that, that everybody lives in. And, and, and at least for the people in that world, it's almost like there's no other world exists. Um, and, and I appreciate that. And I understand that it's not my world. Yeah. Yeah. It seems very different than some of the other things you've done. Uh, you know, it's, um, it, we were selling in large part corporations. So about half of our business was selling to corporations, largely mm -hmm. in the tech sector. So in that way, it was actually very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there were definitely aspects to the political part of it that was learning for me. 
So, so you stayed there for about 15 months and then how long did it take you to accept the role at your, that you're currently at as general manager? Uh, essentially, as I understand it, you're now CEO of two businesses. Yeah. So, so I, uh, it took me 11 months. So I took off 11 months, which was great. Really enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and the role I'm in now is, um, yes, I'm responsible for two fairly independent business lines within the broader cloud software group. So cloud software group, think of it as a holding company, for lack of a better word, um, that was formed out of the combination of both Citrix and Tipco, where they have independent brands that operate more or less as independent companies. Um, and it all rolls up. It's actually owned in large part by Vista, which is one of the leading private equity firms in the LA management, another leading investor. Um, and so these businesses operate fairly independently. Uh, we have a shared set of services and kind of back office functions. So think like HR, legal finance. Uh, but I have P&L responsibility, so profit loss responsibility for these entities. And I own go-to-market R&D in, in much the same way that I would um, as, a, as a private CEO. And in fact, the, the reporting structure that I report up into feels more like a private equity reporting structure um, than a traditional kind of operational um, type model. And, you know, both Jaspersoft and Spotfire, we run them independently. Uh, there's actually not a ton of collaboration between the two. And, and while they are both broadly in the analytic software business, um, they, they target very different use cases and very different personas. And so the go-to-market motions are different. So I would assume it's very challenging from a time perspective to have two companies like this that you're responsible for, especially as you described it, they're very independent, serve different people, different areas. How do you manage that? Uh, I'll let you know when I figure that out. Um, I, you know, I've been in this role now for three months. Uh, it absolutely requires context switching. Uh, I am finding that, you know, you have to rely on your team. Um, and, you know, the more and more I do this, the more and more I find that, that my role is less about doing things and more about establishing a strategy, communicating and hiring the best people possible. So I spend a lot of time, you know, I've already at this particular role brought in some people from my former life, um, made sure that I have really strong leaders in place. And I spend a lot of my time figuring out, you know, what's our strategy for building value? What are the levers that we need to pull to execute on that in the plan? And then making sure everyone understands what those are and, and holding those people accountable to it. So that's a lot of what I do. So, I, you know, I think a lot of times people in business think of things in three-month increments. And so I think it's, it's interesting that you've now been in this role in three months, for three months. What is, what's your focus been in general for the past three months? You know, what, what do you think, you know, when you first join a company like this and take on this challenging role, you know, do you have a game plan from day one? You know, what, what do you, what's that like? Yeah, so I, I actually, so it's interesting. Um, I've worked with PE companies for a while, evaluating businesses. And as I mentioned, we were quite active in the M&A market. So whether it's starting a new role or just looking at a business to try and understand what makes it special and unique, um, I kind of do the same thing every time. Um, and that's the first thing I do is I start with the end customer. Um, what unique, what problem do we solve for this person? Um, and it really comes down to what is the person what is the things that they're trying to do? Where do they live? Like big company, small company, whatever it is. What problem do they have? And how do we uniquely solve that problem in the market? So once I understand that, I then think about, okay, now how do I find these people in a cost-effective, scalable way? What is my route to finding people that look like this with this problem that live in this place? Um, and so I spend a lot of time on the kind of go-to-market. Um, it's not that engineering isn't important. Um, it's not that kind of the back office stuff isn't important. 
Um, but those tend to be informed, or those tend to be more operational, and they tend to be informed by who we're solving and what the problem is and how we reach those people. Um, what I find more often than not is that 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 story around the people that we serve, the problem that we solve, and how to find them is pretty muddled and not very clear. And so I can end up spending a lot of time trying to really reconcile that and figuring that out. So my first three months, spent a lot of time, again, figuring those part of it out and then building our plans for the year as to how we're either going to grow or conserve cash or execute a robot or whatever it may be to support that, that initiative of really getting focused and tight in, in solving that person's problem, persona's problem. So are there any metrics that you look at across the board, across all your CEO jobs that you've held? Are there any you can, you know, kind of specific metrics that you think are fundamental to any CEO job, you know, uh, to ensure business is going to be successful? Oh, yeah, I mean, sure. Look, so so in the the whole concept of private equity, right, is is that there's best practices around how you run and scale and build a software company. So when I'm looking at a business and I'm coming into a business like this and I'm looking for operational opportunities, I'm doing diffs against best practice. It's like, huh, your gross retention is X. Uh, what are you doing around gross retention? Huh, you do this differently than most other companies have ever seen. Why? And then they give me a reason. And usually that reason is because that's the way the person before me did it. And I was like, cool, we're going to move that to best practice. Um, and then, and so you end up asking that question and, and you find lots of different things. So, so the metrics that you look at, you know, at the top level is usually growth plus margin are the first thing. Is this a grower or is it a profitable? And what is that mix of both of those things? Cause you have to trade both of those things off. Once you get one level below that and you start looking across the different functional areas, I look at things that contribute to either growth or profitability. So retention is one of the first things you look at in a recurring revenue business. Um, and you look at retention, you look at net retention. So gross retention is how much of the customers in your area base you maintain. Uh, net retention is what percent of the dollars do you maintain if you include upsell. I look at new logo bookings, how much new logos are you generating? Tends to be one of the most expensive things you can do. So I look for things like what is your cost of customer acquisition and your lifetime value? Because you have to make sure it's economically viable to go get those new customers. If not, maybe it's better to be more profitable or you got to look at the processes that you run there. So it, everything comes down to that growth plus margin, but then there's functional benchmarks you look at, which either support that or pull away from it. So obviously there's a lot of things you've got to do. There's a lot of hats you have to wear as CEO. Uh, what's your least favorite thing about being a CEO? my least favorite thing about being a CEO, it's very lonely. So, so, and what do I mean by that? I'm a pretty extroverted social person. Um, I've always, until I took my first CEO role or, or you know, relatively meaningful size CEO role, I've always had great social connections with my peers, um, you know, gone on trips with families and things along those lines. Uh, as soon as you have no peers, those relationships change. And you can literally feel it in the air. Um, you can't, there's things you don't talk about, frankly, when there's a reporting relationship. Um, people, there's a facade up. People don't vent about their workplace anymore. Um, it, it ends up being a different kind of relationship that, that is not friends and not social. It's, it's colleagues, right? Um, and you really don't have that. And so you have to seek that out and find that somewhere else. And even when I'm engaged in a social engagement in a work type setting, I'm on. Like I'm watching what I say, I'm being careful how I say it. People are listening to what I say and taking direction from it. 
I'll say little, little things. It's like a little musing or a little thought about a particular business process or something at work. And the next thing you know, a whole project's gotten spun up about it. Um, so you have to be very careful um, because you're always on. You're always on. Um, so it's lonely. I had that same experience where when I was a new CEO, I would make a comment about, wouldn't it be nice if, if we could do the following? And if you leave it at that, then pretty soon you're going to be doing the following. You know, every, somebody's going to take the ball and run. If you've got a good team, oftentimes people are going to take the ball and run with it. Oh, and, and people can tend to take it very literally and without context. Um, so it, it's very interesting how some of these things get spun up over time. So I'm intrigued by your 11-month uh, time off. How, how did you spend your, uh, your gap between... Um, uh, phone to action, I think it was called, or no, um, Capital Canary. Yeah, we renamed it from phone to action to Capital Canary. But um, how did I take my 11 month off? It was pretty great. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I did a lot of music, uh, saw a lot of live music, went to some music festivals, things along those lines. I had the good fortune to um, take my kids and my my wife, my family, to Asia for three and a half weeks, uh, which was the trip of a lifetime for them. And I think gave them a greater global exposure that, that you know, most of us never get the opportunity to have. It was, it was really special. Uh, we spent some time in Europe. We traveled a lot. I skied a lot. Uh, I got to tell you, I did not miss working. Uh, I felt very comfortable and very happy doing that. But at the same time, you know, I'm 47 years old. I felt like I was not done climbing hills. And so, you know, after six to nine months, I realized it, it was time and I needed to start thinking about a new, new challenge to tackle. Interesting. Now, I also like to ask, were, have, there, have there been any points where you've thought about not coming back or you thought about uh, not taking a role as CEO? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, up until this, I gave that, I gave that serious consideration, right? Um, and, 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 you know, look, I, I'm a busy guy. I'm a very high energy guy. I always have to be tackling something. Um, I'm actually not particularly money motivated or career advancement motivated. I'm more problem solving motivated. Um, so here's a, a funny story. We actually made an offer on a bar restaurant while I was while I was out. And you know, if we bought that, I might have completely deviated down to being the local tavern keeper. Um, funny enough, we actually did not close it. Uh, we were within fifty thousand dollars of an offer price that was going to get accepted, and it was going to be taking over a business that had an existing operator. And then I would, over a course of a year, take it over. Um, he died like all of a sudden, like ran like a stroke, um, which meant that if we had literally 30 days off, if we had gone through with the business, I would have been an operator immediately because that's what I would have had to done. So I don't know if that's called dodge to bullet or whatever, but it would have been an interesting career change. If you don't mind me asking, um, was that a, a, a bar in the DC area? Was that, uh, was it somewhere? It was. Did, can you share the name? Sure. It was a fire station something in Fairfax City. That would have been very interesting to go in and see you uh, see you uh, tending bar back there. Oh, it was a, it was a beer and shot dive bar, too. And we had visions of how we we're going to remake it, the second floor and all that sort of stuff. But um, but yeah, no, look, I, I actually don't think I will be you know in this kind of role forever. Um, I like novel, interesting challenges. And so, you know, I'm in one now and I'm happy to be here. But at some point, maybe I'll be doing something crazy. So what are your goals with uh, with uh, Tibco and Jaspersoft? Well, so, so to be clear, it's, it's Jaspersoft and Spotfire. Um, I'm Tibco sorry. was the original company that was combined with Citrix. 
We'll, um, we'll cut this out to make me sound smarter then. That's good. You should do that. Um, so, so look, my goal in all of these things are as straightforward as, as simple. Like I, I, like I turn the wheels of capitalism. I, I am here to build shareholder value. And so in each of these entities, I look at it and I look at growth plus margin and figure out what are the levers that I can tweak to either grow the profitability of that business or to make it grow faster. Um, and, you know, I, I won't go into the details of my strategy for each of these things, but, you know, the, the strategies are a little different in each of the different businesses and the opportunity for how much growth or how much profitability is different for each of those things. Um, but, but that's what I'll do. So what advice would you give to people who are uh, starting out their career now? They want to maybe follow in a similar path as you. What would you advise to somebody to prepare for a career like yours? Well, so so let's let's take that as a as someone that is kind of at an early stage career, so no, so not pre-entry level. So because what I see is I see a lot of mid-level career folks, so people that are five years experience, ten years experience. I hate to say it, but are, are very worried about themselves. They're like, I you know I should be paid five thousand dollars more, or I'm not appreciated at this particular place, or they just don't understand what needs to be done to you know grow this business, or my workload is too high, whatever it might be. Um, and look, I, I get that natural desire. I, I get that sense of self. I, trust me, I get that. And um, especially in this country, we're very individual centric. I understand that. Um, but I, I actually think it misses out on the broader perspective of how do I make the overall ship do better? And with that, I will do better and I will have the opportunity to participate in that. I mean, I, I have literally seen people fight and argue over, you know, a comp plan that needs to be 1% different because it's going to mean $400 in their pocket when, and spend time on that when really what they should be thinking about is how do I blow out my comp plan or, you know, by selling more or how do I think about executing the strategy more efficiently? And I have seen time and time again, people that take that, that broader mindset of how do I build value at this company, not how do I capture more of the value for me personally? Ultimately, it will work out for you if you approach that attitude. I, I've seen it over and over and over again. It's very hard for people to get out of that mindset. And people that stay in that mindset top out. Because mm -hmm. as you grow your career and as you grow your progression, that is what people are looking for. People are looking for people that think about how do I make the company more valuable, not how do I make you more valuable. On that topic, do you ever use any, do you use personality testing when you're making key hires, that sort of thing, like strength finders or um, Myers-Briggs or any of the other, you know, dozens of, of personality tests to see what type of profiles people have? I have in the past. Uh, I don't today. I have found it particularly helpful in hiring salespeople. Um, I do think salespeople, particularly new logo salespeople are a particular breed. Um, and I, I think hiring people on profile there tends to be more successful. Um, so I have found that. Uh, I've certainly taken many, many, many personality or aptitude type tests myself. Um, they all end up saying the exact same thing. Um, so, you know, now when people ask, I, I send them mine all the time just because I know what they're going to say and it's easier and it's pretty straightforward. I'm an ENTJ, by the way. Uh, I'm an INTJ and, um, uh, I've used a couple different personality tests and they all say the same thing at this point. Uh, and, but I do think the first time I did it, it was very useful for me. It helped me see some of my own strengths. I, I really like the strength finders, um, uh, 
test. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but that one is a, it, it focuses on what strengths does a person have above all others. And it really leads them, it leads you to really understand kind of how they're going to be motivated, what type of actions they're going to take. In any case, when I first took that one, I found it to be very useful. And then after that, like yourself, I, I find them to be somewhat repetitive. You know, you, you talk about strengths. I want to add to something here. Uh, people always seem more focused on filling their weaknesses than than building on their strengths. And I've always found that interesting and odd. Not, not odd, yeah, odd. I'll call it odd, right? Because like I get, I guess, being well-rounded or being kind of good enough at everything. There's there's some value in that. But at the end of the day, the people that break out and people that do great things and the people that progress their career tend to have like one or two things that they're the absolute best at is what I find. So, you know, I, I would say if, if a younger person is taking a test like that, I would say, what are your strengths and how do we build around those more so than how do I plug the gaps? I agree completely. And in fact, I think I read something similar from Charlie Munger, who just passed away, who he, who, he said something to the effect of, you know, there's no level low enough to describe how I would perform as a as a musician or as a French horn player. Right. And so I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the correct. things, you know, my zone of competence. That's what I'm going to build on. That's what I'm going to grow. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. Were there any other topics that, that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, the, the only thing that I, I would say, you know, before before you got here, you yeah, you sent me a couple kind of topics that that might be might be helpful, and and I will leave you with this one because it is one of the you'd ask, are there things that you say a lot or phrases that you say a lot? And the one I, I say a lot, and I think guides a lot of how I think and how I how I make decisions, is clarity over certainty. It's a phrase that Patrick Leone, is a famous kind of business author, talks a lot about, but I find that to be really helpful, and that's that. You gotta always have a direction. Um, even if you don't know, choose a path. And the if you're at eighty percent on a decision or eighty percent on a direction, the cost to wait till you're at hundred percent probably may be more than the cost of just just making the decision and being wrong. So for me, when I'm at eighty percent, I make a decision, I move on, and there's always a direction, always a direction. And I often encourage other people to think in the same way. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Will. I appreciate you being, uh, appreciate you uh, having me.